I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 9. And tonight, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 29. That's Mark 9, 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And let's do just that. Let's come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we draw near to you now in your word that you would draw near to us. We pray that as we dive into your word that we would receive it with open ears and humble hearts, Lord. Your word, God, is living and active. We pray that you would reveal to us through your word the message you want us to hear today. We are in dire desperate need of you and can understand and comprehend nothing apart from the illuminating power of your spirit. So spirit, we ask that you come and illuminate the scriptures, lead us in applying them and living them out. And above all, we ask that you be glorified in our worship of you and in our fellowship together as we hear your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. No doubt some of you have heard of the story of George Mueller. Mueller was a missionary and pastor. He was born in Prussia, which is now Germany. But he spent most of his life in Bristol, England, where he was a pastor at the same church there for 66 years. And he's perhaps best known for founding orphanages that provided for thousands of children throughout the years of his ministry. In fact, over the course of Mueller's life, he had cared for over 10,000 orphans. 
and one account describes a night at Mueller's orphanage. The children are getting ready for bed, and George is working in his study when his wife comes in with worrying news. She comes into his office and she says, we're out of milk. There just isn't enough for the morning oatmeal for the children. And this wasn't the first time that money is tight for the orphanage. And they needed to buy food and supplies for the children. And at this point in time, there are over a hundred orphans in their care. And Mueller was resolved to not fundraise from people or to borrow money for the ministry and for the orphanage. And instead, he trusted fully in God for his provision and that God would meet their needs. So he hears the news from his wife and he puts his pen down. He gets up from his desk and takes his wife's hand and he says, Mary, let's pray. And they're joined by some of the orphanage staff and together they lift up their prayers and petitions to God and George tells them after they pray, be assured if you walk with him and look to him and expect help from him, he will never fail you. And just then, they hear a knock on the door. And Mary runs to answer it. And after a moment, she comes back into George's study, handing her husband an envelope. And George opens this envelope, and in it is a contribution with more than enough money for the milk. And within minutes, two more letters arrive with money and pledges of support. See, Mueller's steadfast reliance and dependence on God in his life, in his ministry, it's a lesson for us today that ultimately God is worthy of our faith and trust even when we face difficulties and even in spite of the fact that our faith is often found imperfect and lacking. And that brings us to our section of Scripture here today. Here in Mark 9, we see what's perhaps one of the most well-known sections of Scripture, but also one that is often misused and misunderstood. For at the heart of this passage is not the struggle with a demon, but the struggle for faith. And it's my hope that as we look at this passage together, that we'd be reminded that our imperfect, often small faith should drive us closer to our Lord and not away from Him. For the condition of our faith, be it great or small, is not the basis by which we come to our Lord and approach His throne of grace, but rather it is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And in our passage, we'll be looking at this from two different lenses. First, we'll be looking at the response of this desperate father that we see. And second, we'll be looking at the response of the bewildered disciples, Jesus' own disciples. They both had imperfect faith, but had two very different responses when that imperfect faith encountered Jesus. Two imperfect faiths but two different responses, the desperate father and the disciples. Now, before we get to our section of Scripture, it's important for us to take a couple steps back for context. This section starts immediately following the transfiguration of Christ. And as we know, in Christ's transfiguration, the radiant, unspeakable glory of God shone out from Jesus. The Father's voice declared, 
This is my beloved Son. Christ was transfigured and displayed God's glory, and Peter, James, and John had a front seat to this. And this is the backdrop of where our section of Scripture picks up today. It's after all this took place that Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, come down from the mountain of glory and into the valley below. We get a glimpse into the glory of God and what it's like to be with him on the mountaintop. But then we descend with Jesus back to the dark world below. And like Moses descending Mount Sinai after he had experienced God's glory, Jesus descends the Mount of Transfiguration not to find a golden calf, but to find another scene, one that's also wrought with faithlessness. Let's look at verse 14 together. And when they, meaning Jesus with Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, the other nine, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So there's a crowd there, and in the middle of it, he finds the scribes arguing with his other nine disciples. And the crowd rushes to greet him, and Jesus asks them, probably the scribes, what are you arguing about with them? And nobody answers. There's just radio silence. The scribes don't answer. The disciples don't answer. Nobody wants to say a thing. Until finally a voice from the crowd answers him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Here we see exactly what the scribes and the nine disciples were arguing about. This father who stepped forward, he was at the center of this controversy. We learn here that he was seeking out Jesus, that his son would have this unclean spirit, this demon removed from him. However, when he had brought his son to the disciples, they were unable to cast it out. So the scribes, not missing an opportunity to challenge and berate Jesus' disciples, Engage with them in debate, no doubt about their inability to cast out this unclean spirit. See, they might have said, it's a hoax. The jig is up. Your failure here proves that you're all frauds. And if you're frauds, then so is your master. Where's the authority that you were promised? But now, the scribes are silent too. Or rather, they were silenced by the presence of Christ himself. They were happy for the opportunity to go after the disciples. But now that Jesus himself was on the scene, they didn't want to get schooled. But Jesus' disciples, his disciples were also silent. For it's their failure to cast out the unclean spirit from the child that's caused this entire situation in the first place. And now, 
the disciples are dealing with the aftermath of their failures. An irritating argument with the scribes. A desperate, heartbroken father. And a suffering boy who is still in need of aid. And I want you to imagine the desperation of the father here. I want you to step into his shoes. He seeks out Jesus in the hope that the Lord would heal his son and rid him of this unclean spirit. And the son's affliction is severe. This unclean spirit is doing great harm to this child. And we can't even imagine, we can't even begin to imagine the pain and affliction that this boy is experiencing, nor can we imagine the pain in his father's heart. The desperate father sought out Jesus, but finds the disciples, and the disciples say to him that they've been given authority to cast out demons, as it says in Matthew 10. And they try, and they try, and they try, and they fail. They say the right words. They're doing what they've done in the past. And nothing seems to work. And sure, the disciples are embarrassed and in poor spirits. But among everyone there, the Father is truly in the poorest of spirits. Notice that he explicitly tells Jesus, I brought my son to you. He probably thought Jesus would be there in that crowd with his disciples. He no doubt had heard of this Jesus who was doing the impossible. And he brought his afflicted son, who knows how far, only to find Jesus not there, but rather his disciples, who had been given authority by him. And he brings a son to them, and they're just stumped, and the father's hopes are dashed. But Jesus is now before him. The Father's hope now reinvigorated. And he is desperate. He is desperate for his aid. The Son is hurting, and therefore the Father is hurting. And the the King James says it in verse 18, that wheresoever it taketh him, it teareth him. This Father's Son is being torn apart before his very eyes. And when there's finally a spark of hope for his son, a chance for him to maybe, just maybe, have this pain and anguish removed from him, he is met with unbelievable disappointment. So Jesus looks at the situation and he rebukes those present with a sigh of exasperation. O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He says this in response to the father's heartbreaking story about his boy. But the word them here indicates that these words aren't they're not directed at this father. But he addresses the crowd and particularly his own disciples. And Jesus turns to the man and and he says, bring him to me. Bring the boy unto me. See, Jesus 
He doesn't waste time here. He doesn't wait for an apology or an explanation from the disciples. Nor does he find any need to address the argumentative scribes. No, our Lord is not idle, and he is not idle in his compassion. He didn't come to exchange words, but he came to act. Immediately he calls for the boy to be brought to him. For where we see a display of weakness in man, we see a display of power and authority in Christ. It's the Lord who says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And what a picture of weakness. And it's here we see how this desperate father with weak, imperfect faith, responds when he encounters Christ. And so they brought the boy to Jesus. And when they did, the unclean spirit saw him. Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. The demon sees the Lord Jesus, and he knows that his time afflicting this child is coming to an end. And Jesus sees this happen, and he looks at the boy, and it's very interesting that he asks this to the father. He looks at the father and asks, how long has this been happening to him? Why? Why does Jesus ask this? Is he a medical doctor? who needs to know how long certain symptoms have been present in order to narrow down possibilities for a diagnosis? No. Jesus knows exactly how long this has been happening to him. He doesn't ask because he doesn't know. He's not asking to collect information. He asks because he cares for this man and for his son. He asks because he is compassionate. And with this question, Jesus pulls on the strings of this father's heart, drawing him to come to him, to share his struggles with him, and to trust him and depend on him. And the poor father gives a heavy and seamlessly hopeless answer from childhood, from when he was a young child, from infancy. And it doesn't say in the text how old the boy is now. He could be five or six, or ten or twelve, but we do know this, that this man's son has been in pain for years, and for years, this father has been able to do nothing to help his son. And this father knows that. And that's exactly why he's here, seeking the help of Jesus. And the father continues saying, it's often cast cast him, that is to throw him or thrust him into fire and into water to destroy him. This unclean spirit was, was hurting him, yes, but he was also even trying to kill him. This father was desperate to save his son. And he was running low on faith. Yet after all these years, 
This father hears of Jesus, right? The promised one who has the very power of God to cast out demons, feed the hungry, heal the sick. And this spark of hope pushes him to seek out the Lord. Anything for his child. Anything for his son. That's why he's here. And now it's almost as if the pain is swelling in the father's gut as he sees his son in anguish before him. And doubt has now crept into his mind so that his confidence is broken. And as the fear and doubt swirl in his mind, he petitions Jesus still. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If thou canst do anything, have compassion and help us. And I want us to see two things here. The nature of the Father's plea and our Lord's reply. First, the Father desperately pleads to our Lord, have compassion and help us. In desperation, he asks Jesus for two things, compassion and help. And he asks these things for us, for both him and his boy. And I don't think he's doubting Jesus' compassion. In fact, the original order of the text is help us, having had compassion on us. See, he knows, he already knows that Christ is compassionate. And Jesus' tenderness in dealing with this father reinforces that. He knows he's compassionate, but what he is struggling to have faith in is God's ability this father brought his son to, see, to seek Jesus, is met with the failure of the disciples, and now he doubts. And he's afraid. He's afraid to simply ask for Christ to act on his compassion. Instead, the father feels the need to qualify his statement by saying, if you can do anything. All the while, Christ possesses both the compassion and the ability required. And both are necessary here. Someone with compassion and no ability isn't able to help you. They can do nothing for you. And someone with ability and no compassion has no reason to help you. Both compassion and ability are absolutely necessary here. And the Lord Jesus has both. He is both compassionate and completely able. He's completely sovereign. So let's look at how Jesus replies. The Lord replies to this desperate father with tenderness, tenderly correcting him, saying his words back to him. If you can. See here, Jesus makes it clear that it's not about his ability. His ability, Jesus' authority was never and is never in question. He is the sovereign God who made the heavens and the earth. He's the one who when Sarah laughed in her old age, 
He's the one who said, is anything too hard for the Lord? And Jesus is saying here, no, it's not about if I'm able or not. It's not a question of my ability. It is a question of your faith. Do you believe? Do you genuinely believe in me? That I am able? All things are possible for one who believes. See, the Father, with all his fears and doubts, he puts the onus on Christ's ability, but Christ makes it abundantly clear it's never about his ability. It's about whether or not we genuinely trust him. And what about us? Do we doubt the Lord's compassion? Do we doubt his ability? Jesus tells us here that all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for believers because when we believe, when we trust him completely and genuinely, we place no limits on God's power and we don't doubt his compassion for us. So I challenge all of us here tonight, especially for those of us who are going through difficulty and trials right now, who were once up on that mountain, but who have now descended into the valley. Are we trusting that our Lord is able? Or do we let our doubts get the best of us? Do we let them take over our thoughts? Thoughts like, well, after years of praying and sharing the gospel with no fruit to speak of, there's no way God could save my unbelieving, aging parent or my unbelieving friend or my unbelieving child. So I stopped praying for them. Why bother? Maybe they're too far gone. Why did you stop praying? Or for ourselves? Maybe it's sin and guilt that's driven us further and further away from godliness, further away from turning to Christ. And you're consumed with your thoughts and afraid to come to God, and you're focused on everything you're doing or not doing, and you think, maybe I'm too far gone. Well, well, it's Jesus' words here, his tender correction, that then caused this poor father to examine his own heart. And here he acknowledges that what faith he has is a small faith. He probably felt like he was hanging by a thread. He encounters Jesus in the time of his greatest desperation. Discouraged by the disciples' failure, painfully watching his own son in anguish. And he knows his faith is small. And it's as if he's like the Apostle Peter going out onto the water desperately Desperately going out onto the water, going out to Jesus. But to him, to this father, 
He doesn't feel like he's slowly sinking with water slowly creeping up from his ankles to his knees. Rather, this father must have felt like the water was at his neck, ready to take him under the waves. But even though at this point, he had a small faith, perhaps the smallest it ever was, it was still there, and it was genuine. And his self-awareness of his own deficiencies, his own deficiency of faith, coupled with the fact that his faith in God was genuine and true, produced an incredible statement as he immediately responds to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. This cry from the desperate father confirms to us that this father believed. His faith was there, but it was a small faith, a fragile faith. But it also confirms to us that he is acutely aware of just how little faith he had. And in his lowest state, he cries out to God for aid. Now, I don't think this is happenstance at all. I think that this man is exactly where he needs to be, to be driven to the point where he comes in desperation to God, in desperate need of Christ. And at this point, for this man, Christ has become all he needs. And this is exactly where the Lord would have him broken, bringing nothing, completely reliant on Christ. Even relying on Christ to help him with his own failure to trust him. And what a picture that is. Spurgeon once said that this this self-aware deficiency is something a man can only truly acknowledge by faith. He says, while men have no faith, they're unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. And I want us to see how much of an encouragement this Father's words are for such imperfect, deficient sinners such as us. Brothers and sisters, believers, if you've put your trust in Christ, then the awareness of your deficiencies and the desire to grow despite your smallness of faith shows that there is faith. Be not discouraged. Don't let the accuser tell you that because your faith isn't perfect, that God can't act in your life. And while some might think it's a bad thing to pray that, to call out to God, Help my unbelief, as if it's some kind of admission of defeat. I think that praying it is the exact prayer that we need constantly. We need to introspectively examine ourselves and find inevitably that we lack the faith we ought to have. We must find that calling out to Christ in our desperate need for Him is not only our only option, It's exactly what the Lord would have us do. We need to look more to Christ 
and less to ourselves, more to his salvation and less to our performance. See, this father comes to Jesus and he does so clinging to the kind of faith that we should have. Because Jesus wasn't looking for perfect faith. It doesn't exist for sinners. He's looking for genuine faith. And what happens for this father when his genuine faith is met with Jesus? It says in verse 25 that then Jesus saw the crowd come running together and he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And Jesus, with a simple word, with a simple word, he does what the disciples could not. He does for the ailing son what his desperate father could not. The father had asked him, if you are able, have compassion on us. But here Christ plainly displays his authority with a simple word. He exercises his power and shows us that he is truly able. Jesus makes it plain that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And with that authority, he is answering this father's prayer. And immediately after Jesus says these words, it says that the unclean spirit cried out and convulsed the boy terribly as, it, as if it tried one last time to inflict whatever pain it could on the child. It convulsed him terribly and came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. And can you imagine what's going on in this father's head right now? His son torn by the demon, causing him to be in writhing pain. The unclean spirit crying out from the boy with a terrible shriek and convulsing his entire body in pain. And suddenly, silence. And whispers emerge from the crowd around him saying, the boy is dead. But it says, but Jesus Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The unclean spirit was gone, and the son was alive to go home with his father. The father came to him in desperate need of him, and Jesus answered his prayer through power and compassion. And it's Jesus' compassion that takes this boy by the hand and lifts him up and restores his life to him. Because of Christ's compassion, the son was raised up. The son was restored and able to return to his father. And this father's small but genuine faith was met head on with the power and compassion of Christ. For as we know, it's not about the measure of faith. It's about the object of that faith. And we see clearly in this narrative that Christ himself is the object of genuine faith because he is the one who is worthy of that faith. God himself is the only one with control over our circumstances. The only one who can deliver us from our despair and the only one 
with dominion over the devil and victory over death. He himself, Jesus, is the one who will crush the serpent's head and ultimately cast out all evil. And that should offer us great encouragement. Especially, especially when we feel that our faith is small. Sinclair Ferguson once wrote, the true faith takes its character and its quality from its object. True faith takes its character and quality from its object. Its strength depends on the character of Christ. So even those of us who have weak faith have the same strong Christ as others. And it's true. Christ is ours if we but put our trust in him, no matter how fragile we might feel our faith to be. And it's here that I want us also to look at another father, our heavenly father. The father for, who for the sake of sinners has not spared his own son. For it's this father who shows his love and compassion to us by giving us his son, Jesus. For while we were yet sinners, the Son of God came for us. He bore the pain and anguish we deserve in his own body, becoming sin for us, becoming a curse for us. And though he deserved none of it, when he had borne the pain and anguish at the cross, he breathed his last, and they said of him, He is dead. But the Son of God arose. And he was raised up in victory over sin and death. And he's now seated at the right hand of his Father. And this Son of God, Jesus, was here now with this desperate Father on earth. There with his ailing Son, showing them the compassion of God. Knowing all the while that he was on his way to the cross. And he went to that cross and he went through this valley to bring glory to God and to show great compassion to sinners like them and like us. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I, I plead with you today to see this. That He is there, both compassionate and strong. Strong to save. He is there with you who lack faith. And God is reminding you of this, that if you would but look to the cross and look at what Christ has endured on your behalf, if there is anything that you remember tonight, it's that Christ's compassion extends to you. Not only is he compassionate, he is able to save you. And he is calling upon you now to repent and trust in him. So please, come desperately to him and come as you are, bringing nothing to receive from him everything. And now I want to switch gears and direct our attention to Jesus' disciples. We saw how the desperate father with his imperfect faith with his fears and with his doubts, how he clung to Christ in his lowest low. But now, 
Let's take a closer look at how the disciples responded. It says that after all this had happened, Jesus and his disciples withdraw indoors, probably to a house nearby. And it says, when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples ask Jesus, and they're perplexed, and they don't understand. They ask, Lord, why could we not cast it out? Why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do it? And I think the disciples' question is very telling of where their hearts and minds are focused right now. See, just two chapters ago in the book of Mark, Jesus sent them out. And it says in Mark 6 that they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So what gives? What happened? Why couldn't we do it? Now these disciples, they've been been with Jesus for a while now. They've seen the cleansing of the Gerasene demoniac, the raising of Jairus' daughter. They were with him when he fed the 5,000 and when he calmed the storm. But just one chapter before our passage here in Mark 8, Before Jesus feeds the 4,000, Jesus tells his disciples regarding the crowd before them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And even though the disciples had been with Jesus when he had already fed the the 5,000, the disciples still asked, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? They were with Jesus literally the entire time he's doing these things. And many of you know this. They were worried about where the bread was going to come from. They were with God and they were worried about bread. The short-sightedness that we see here The short-sightedness of the disciples at this point in time, it is a reflection of where their hearts and minds are. They are set on circumstances, and they are set on self. They've allowed their circumstances that they're in, as well as their own deficiencies, to place limits on Christ's ability They are allowing their own deficiencies to place limits on God's authority and on his ability. But Jesus has shown time and time again that he is the Christ. Much like God showing his power and delivering Israel from Egypt, yet still they remained faithless. And as Moses descended Sinai to find the faithless Israelites, Jesus descends the Mount of Transfiguration 
to find faithlessness in his own disciples. The disciples ask, why could we not cast it out? Not because they're aware of and acknowledging the fragility of their faith. They're asking this because they think they've done something wrong. Something's off. We said the words. We did everything right. Why couldn't we do it? And isn't that such a typical response that we see in our pragmatic church era? Churches and pastors and members think the focus needs to be on the right formula, the right method, the right program, rather than on the right faith. And Jesus' response to the disciples is so simple here. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Not saying that this is a special type of demon that requires a certain procedure or certain incantations to be said, but rather that the disciples lacked a selfless reliance on God alone for their ministry. Jesus tells them that prayer is what was needed. And what is prayer but requesting from God that our will be conformed and placed subject to His will? That we acknowledge Him as the one whom from any strength is derived. See, when we fail, and we will, let us not try to go about things as the disciples did in this situation. When Christ isn't at the center, we might give lip service, we might say all the right things, and do all the things that others might expect of us. But in reality, we're just leaning on ourselves. See, the disciples, they had a lot to learn from the Father that they had just encountered. In fact, in a very real sense, this desperate father was more mature than the disciples themselves. And Jesus was using this father to teach his own disciples the very lesson that they needed to learn. They needed to not rely on their own strength. When they encountered failure, They needed to cry out to God for help. Just like the Father, the disciples should have been on their knees in prayer saying, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's exactly why they couldn't do it. Because they were far too focused on themselves. And they were busy dissecting what was wrong with their ability instead of diagnosing what was wrong within their hearts. See, when we rely on ourselves, we say in our hearts that our strength is sufficient. And we know very well that it's not. We doubt Christ in our hearts. We show our lack of faith in Him when we look inward instead of upward for strength. And it's Spurgeon who once said, Doubt thee 
my Lord? I could doubt all except Thee and doubt myself most of all. Let us not doubt Christ, but let us put our faith and trust fully in Him. And to close, I want to take a quick look in the Gospel of Matthew where we see a parallel account of this event. And in Matthew 17, the disciples ask Jesus this same question. Why could we not cast it out? And here in Matthew, Jesus tells them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith, Like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Sound familiar? All things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is telling the disciples the exact same thing he told the the desperate father just a few moments ago. Yet the disciples were with Jesus all this time. They had every reason to look to Christ. But they didn't. Even in their ministry work. But Jesus is saying here, trust in me. Lean on me. Because I am fully able. I am what you need. Yes, our faith is imperfect, but we have a perfect Savior. One who is able to supply our every need. So let's, that, let's make that our prayer today. Let us say in those difficult and desperate times when we know that our faith is small, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's not hesitate to cry out to God in prayer and to run to Him. And let us also not grow complacent or coast, even in, especially in ministry. Let us never think that our own power can accomplish anything apart from the power of Christ, but rather let us lean on Him, knowing that we're fully dependent on Him, desperate for more of Him. Help our unbelief and increase our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, incline our hearts to trust completely in You. Lord, we know that we are fragile and powerless. So we pray not for strength of our own, but to lean more and more on the strength found in Christ. We pray that in difficulties and in the everyday, that the attitudes and affections of our hearts would not be determined by circumstances or by our own ability or success but that they'd be solely fixed on Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. May He increase and may we decrease. May we without hesitation come to You saying, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, increase our faith in You. Help us this day to fix our eyes on Jesus to be always desperate for more of Him. Amen.